There are men who don't know what SHIELD stands for. There are men who don't know what SHAZAM stands for. You gotta wonder if those men know what they stand for. And then there's Adam Bernstein and Doug Bost. Two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. Hello, fans. Grown-ass friends. We're here to talk about one of our favorite writers today on this episode. The wonderful, incredible, amazing, innovative Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber. The duck he went into my brain. The man thing oozed, and now I'm not the same. I climbed the tower of credit cards with Beverly Switzler as my bodyguard, Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber Steve Gerber Some of my fondest memories with Steve are just doing improvisational guerrilla street theater. I looked up at him as an older guy, but he looked up at me as somebody who knew more about comics. He looked around at all these these towers that uh, that Stan and Jack and Ditko and those guys built, and he bowed to them, and then he knocked them all down, you know? Okay, this episode is like a grown-ass men king-sized annual. 64 action-packed pages for only 25 cents because we have a lot to cover. Steve Gerber. Gerber is not around anymore. We would love to talk to him if he was, but he's not. So what we did is what we kind of thought was the next best thing. We talked with a few of the people who knew him well, and we tried to pull together a picture of how he worked, what it was like in his circle, and how other Marvel writers felt about him in the 70s and 80s and now. And it turns out, Steve Gerber's life story is an incredible story. In this episode, you're going to hear from J.M. DeMatteis, comic book writer and TV writer. You know him from Craven's Last Hunt and Brooklyn Dreams. You'll hear Scott Edelman, former editor of Foom, Friends of Old Marvel. Marvel's own fanzine, and an accomplished sci-fi writer. Jerry Conway, the writer who took over Spider-Man from Stan Lee and went on to become editor-in-chief of Marvel, among many other things. And then we have to talk about Mary Screenus. So to start, let's do a little background on the kind of writer Steve Gerber was. Well, he came out of the traditional comic book lineage, a big fan of Stan and Jack, and then by the time he really gets in there, he realizes that that's not really the kind of stories he wants to write. Yeah, he got into comics in the very late 60s and really had his uh, biggest creative period throughout the 70s Right. for Marvel. And um, he is most famous for, of course... Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. Which is still incredible. It's only like 20 issues or so, or 21 if you count the like giant-sized stuff. <laughs> and it's still incredible. It's unfortunate that the movie was so lame. Well, it, the amazing thing about Howard the Duck is that it was a really good comic. And the movie was so bad that Howard the Duck became <laughs> shorthand for total catastrophe. Right, right. Like, if you say Howard the Duck, what you're saying is everything went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame because when you go back in time, the book was so great. Yeah. Issue one had distribution problems, so it became a collector's item right away. And the great idea to make a Howard the Duck for president oh. was so amazing especially if you were reading those books as it came out in 1976 yeah, yeah. 1976 <laughs> he howard the duck ran for president in 1976 against uh against jerry ford and and jimmy carter right and everybody had everybody who was anybody uh which means me and my brother uh had <laughs> buttons that said howard had, the duck for president i had a bunch of those buttons i wish i still had them all now oh. but uh and we're gonna, well, you did get a new one i had to get it i had to get one yeah. yeah 
went and on it, eBay. And it's amazing that I got mine at that early convention that I went to in New York City, 1976. Yes, because amazingly, Adam met Steve Gerber. I did. It was very, very brief, and he did an autograph in my uh, program. A lot of Steve Gerber's best work, he's known for this very personal writing. Yes. It's not like a regular comic book story usually if you read a steve gerber comic you know you're reading one because usually you can feel somebody's voice behind it but a lot of his best work on on howard the duck and on omega the unknown was done with a partner mary screenis right who is a super private person that was clear yes she um is not easy to find out anything about online she's kind of a mystery yeah uh, but together, Steve and Mary created this work that was, in a way, so personal and so successful that it drove them out of comics. Yeah. What uh, are some of the things that Gerber is famous for writing? Well, I mean, besides Howard, which is so incredible, the whole Every Man Thing issue that he wrote has the same stamp of individuality right. and talking about politics and you know relationship issues in certain ways making fun of the whole superhero genre yep like he's sort of doing that on everything so he has man thing he did howard the duck he has a very famous run on the defenders mm-hmm. which i've been meaning to reread omega the unknown he did some dr fate for dc did Metal Men for DC. Yep. He and created She-Hulk. I like She-Hulk. Yeah. Sure. He didn't create the Guardians of the Galaxy, but they were nothing until he revived them. They certainly and, looked different in those days. <laughs> yes. It was a really big wide guy and it was a blue guy, <laughs> you know. But he kept bringing them back right in different issues until they sort of became more part of the Marvel story. Right, and then look what happened now. Now they have their own movies. And then this thing happened with Howard the Duck. The thing that was he was most famous for, besides creating Howard the Duck, was the fight over Howard the Duck. Because yeah. when Marvel went to sell the movie rights to George Lucas, Steve Gerber said, well, I created it. Right. And Marvel said, no, it's our property. Yeah. And at the time, Jack Kirby was also fighting for the rights of his characters so Jack and Steve Gerber actually worked together to raise money. Right, pay for the lawyers. To pay for the lawyers and pay for the court case. And they created a comic called Destroyer Duck um, <laughs> that Jack team. drew. Right, right. And then later I found out that when Steve Gerber left comics, he went into animation. He went out to L.A. Right. And he started working with Jack Kirby again. Right. He because they really had something in common and they started working on Thundar the Barbarian together. And right, right, right. Gerber invented Thundar the Barbarian, which was an animated show that only lasted for two seasons. Okay. But but Kirby drew a lot of the characters. <laughs> anyway, Gerber, you know, eventually had to they settled the case right. and Gerber issued this statement saying that Howard the Duck was created as a, as a work for hire, and, and he had to say, okay, Marvel owns it. Yeah. Uh, and then he left comics. Yeah. He, he was done. He, he was so frustrated that he left comics for a while in the, in the 80s and the 90s, and then he came back, and then un- the, the sad truth is that he died. Right. Steve Gerber died in 2008 of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is a terrible respiratory disease. But the word idiopathic means unknown. So it seems like they didn't really know the cause of his illness. And he was, he was waiting on a, he was on a waiting list for a double lung transplant, and he never received that. Right, and what we heard from people who knew him at the time is that he kept writing during that period, but he yes. was sick. Yeah. He was really sick, yeah. so it was really a drag. But he went out the way he probably wanted to go out if he had to. He kept writing stuff, you know? Yeah. So... We talked to a few folks who actually knew him over the last couple of episodes. We did a whole episode with J.M. DiMatteis recently, and um, he had some great things to say about Steve Gerber. Did you ever work with Steve Gerber? 
No, I never did. And I only met him once. You know, I had dinner. I was in L.A. once and I had dinner with Marv Wolfman and Marv invited Steve. And 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 what's funny is I don't feel like we even particularly clicked. And this is a guy whose work I totally, totally adored. It still adore, you know, and you're hoping that I'm going to meet him and we're going to become best friends immediately. Not that anything negative went on, but, you know, there was no like a magical connection or anything like that. Um, and it's a lot to project just because I love someone's work that we're going to meet the first time and magically have a wonderful connection. But, you know, I'm glad I got to meet him. But the same thing that we're talking about writers and artists. I, didn't have to, I don't have to know Steve Gerber to know Steve Gerber through his work. And his work meant so much to me when I was, you know, comics kind of grew up as I was growing up. You know what I mean? You know, Stan and Jack and Ditko in the 60s, they exploded things and kept me reading maybe at a time when I might have stopped. And then as I got older into my, you know, my, my teenage years, and then suddenly there's, you know, Gerber and Engelhart and Len Wein and, and Doug Munch and, and Jim Starlin and all these guys doing all this amazing stuff that, you know, on, on one level probably commercially limited the audience, but in terms of me, completely expanded the medium and blew my mind, to use a, a phrase of the era, you know, um, and, and nobody more than Gerber, you know, I just loved his stuff. There was something it was the experimental quality, certainly. I always say that he kind of walked in, he looked around at all these, these towers that uh, that Stan and Jack and Ditko and those guys built, and he bowed to them and then he knocked them all down, you know? Uh, and he wasn't afraid to try anything. And it opened, again, opened my mind to like, yes, this stuff can be like anything. It's not like Marvel Comics and Underground Comics. I mean, I always say Howard the Duck was the first overground underground comic, you know, a mainstream Marvel comic that really read like an underground comic. Uh, and he, but the but the thing, if that's all it was, it wouldn't have mattered as much to me. But there was always, especially in his work in the '70s, there was a deep wellspring of emotion in his work, and real passion, and real caring about the world and about people. Um, so whatever. It's kind of like Len, and you know, it's kind of a shell of cynicism, but at the core is sort of this idealism and vulnerability, and those two things working together or pulling against each other make for great stories and makes for great music. Um, a connection that I, you might disagree, that I see between you and and Steve Gerber is how personal the work is, even when it's about a duck. You know, like yeah. it's really about Steve Gerber. You feel like it and has I to like, be. Yeah, you know, that's at least you know. The re, you know, it's sort of like which comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg. The reason, the reason I responded, I'm sure, to Gerber's work was because it was so personal, because that's how I am. I just, you know what I mean? I, it's, it's all very emotional. It's all very psychological. It's all very personal. Um, and so I respond, I respond to any writer that's going to open up their heart and their mind in that way. Um, I, I tell my writing students, and I always caution that, I mean it metaphorically, you have to take a knife and drive it into your chest, you know, and bleed all over the pages. You have to. And that's one of the things that I responded to in Gerber's work. And that's the only way I know how to write. Even if I've just written the crappiest story in the world, there should be some sort of personal connection in there you know what i mean because i it's just the way i approach a story i mean obviously we've been all living with man thing for decades right. but it's the most absurd looking most absurd yes. character that they ever came out with you know who had his own book and it's like yes to be able to do something with man thing and he doesn't talk it's so happening and that's kind of why I think he was able to do it. You know, like I've learned over the years, the more obscure the characters are, uh, the less developed they've been, you know, the more room you have to play. And so someone hands Steve Gerber Manthing a shambling muck monster, you know, that burns people when they feel fear. Not a lot there to work, work with. So what does he do? He builds up a whole universe of characters and concepts around that and makes it intensely personal. It's like a, some of it is literally like a diary you know those those the one issue where he missed i think was that the book where he was it howard the duck where he missed his deadline and just wrote essays about missing this deadline but uh <laughs> but i think there's an issue of man thing too where it's a lot of prose you know um and so uh it's just amazing and that and reading that you know kind of gave me permission in my mind just to go yeah see comics aren't just that just as you know stan and jack and ditko and ramita and all those guys broke down a group of barriers these guys came along and broke down even more barriers and that left me free. You know, I worked on both. Uh, I worked on Defenders and Man Thing uh, myself. And, you know, when you're stepping into those waters, Defenders has a tradition of being weird and personal. So I knew I had permission to be weird and personal. And if you're going to write Man Thing, you have to put a stick of dynamite in the story and blow it up. You have to because that's that's the tradition, you know. With Steve Gerber, he 
he really left Marvel over ownership of, of Howard the Duck. Yeah, Howard the I Duck. believe so. Yeah. Do you think that his, you know, doing that, taking that stand, helped other writers and artists like you? Yeah, I think so. I think because he wasn't the only one at that, in that point in time, but he was certainly a flashpoint for it. And Kirby wanted to get his original artwork back. And, and you need those people that come in and fight those battles because that's why by the time I was in the business, you know, we were getting royalties, which didn't exist when right. Steve was working. You know, when, uh, you know, speaking of Swamp Monsters, one of my other favorite all-time, you know, books, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson on Swamp Thing, just classic, amazing stuff. Those guys were just getting their page right. And that was it. And that's what added to, I forget, it might have been Pacific Comics who were the first guys that were paying royalties. And then, you know, Marvel, and then I think DC did it, and then Marvel did it, I forget which order. But, you know, and it was all as a response to these things that these guys saw going on. And they thought, oh, if we pay royalties, we're going to get people to come here and work for us. And if you don't have those guys banging the pots and pans and screaming, there's not going to be any change. You know, now I have to say, you know, back in the day, both, you know, Jeanette Kahn at DC and, and Shooter at Marvel, they were very much behind those royalty programs. They wanted people uh, to be getting a fair share of the pie, you know, and over the years, um, you know, the deals that we've worked out, you know, for participation in film and TV, some of them, there's still, there's a lot of adjustment that needs to be made. Um, but in other cases, you know, we really can get a quite a nice, uh, a nice piece of that. And that's really, really helpful to us, you know, because we're, for me anyway, I've always been a freelancer. So I'm, I'm always just, one guy juggling lots of projects, whether it's in TV and film, animation and comics, books, whatever it is, um, just trying to make sure enough work's coming in that my family is safe and comfortable, you know? So things like royalties and getting participation in films and all these things are really, really important. I, I, I love those seven comics from the 70s. I mean, Tomb of Dracula and Master of Kung Fu and all the Gerber stuff and Swamp Thing and you know, I was talking to somebody this the other day. Um, someone was saying something about the Swamp Thing, Howard. If you look at from, from look, some, look at some of these books from the point of view of now, well, everyone's built on that, so it doesn't seem very revolutionary. But I remember reading Roy Thomas's and Barry Smith's Conan for the first time, Swamp Thing for the first time, Tomb of Dracula, Master of Kung Fu, which I thought this has got to be the stupidest comic ever made, right? And then you read it, it's like, oh my God, this is really good. And you have to take any kind of work in the context of its times because it's very easy to look back and look at Stan's stuff and say, oh, it's so corny. No, it was revolutionary. You know, Kirby, the biggest revolutionary comics ever had in a lot of ways, you know, just a genius, an absolute genius. These guys were doing things in comics, mainstream comics that had never been done before. Just as Stan and Jack and Steve and those guys were doing things that had never been done before. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the excellent J.M. DiMatteis. We also talked with a good friend of Steve's, Scott Edelman. Um, Scott Edelman is somebody that uh, that Adam met, I believe, on Twitter. Yeah, and that's he right. um, he wrote for Marvel and DC. He edited Foom for a while which is a, a, right, awesome it deserves its own episode right there just Foom, the Foom episode. it was marvel's fanzine right and um scott uh, edited that and he he now he does a lot of sci-fi writing um sci-fi stories and also writing about sci-fi itself um and you can kind of hear in our conversation i think how much he really loved steve gerber like it, it was really he, he was it was an important relationship in his life Some of my fondest memories with Steve are just doing improvisational guerrilla street theater when, I don't know where it would just come out of, we would just start kibitzing, and he was one of the people who would be willing to go with it. So I remember after a dinner we were having in Times Square, half a dozen of us, there was a crowd around of non-comic book people on the street, and I just threw myself down on the ground and grabbed his ankles and said, Dad, you know, come home. Mom is miserable. You've got to come home and not leave the family. You know, of course, at that age, we were not that many years apart, right? <laughs> I was, you know, how many years older? He's not that many years older than me. What, five or eight, six? I'm not even, I can't remember exactly the number of years. And we, we ended up doing that shtick, and he would be walking along and pulling me and dragging me, and the floor is filthy in Times Square, but I'm, you know, I'm letting him drag me along while he's trying to get away from me. And we probably did this whole shtick for 15 minutes. Uh, in Times Square. So, you know, so we would end up doing things like that together and working at Marvel at that time, I guess, was a little bit like working at Saturday Night Live where everybody 
was very funny and willing to say and do anything, you know, when you had Marv Wolf and all, all those people and Jerry. Uh, so that just that memory of being with Steve and other times like that uh, was just fantastic that we would uh, do that together. One of the things I think about comic book writers or anybody who gets into comics is Steve did a very special thing that not everybody can do and which I've definitely failed to do when I got into comics because you come into comics with certain goals and some people like Roy Thomas would come into comics and want to be Stan Lee and then everything you write is trying to bring to life what Stan did because you had this particular love of comics and the particular voice. Then all the way on the other side, you have someone like Don McGregor, who could never be anything but Don McGregor, right out of the gate from the first stories he did for Warren. He was himself. He never came in, let's say, in disguise, like, okay, I'm going to sneak in and pretend to be one thing or do one kind of comic and then switched over to something else. You know, McGregor was a fighter and doing it his way his entire life. But what Steve managed to do is start working and you said, okay, well, this is a guy who's okay and can write some decent comics. Those first comics he did for Marvel, you wouldn't necessarily know that he was going to be an envelope pusher, uh, you know, the way certain people are. And then he grew into himself. And that's what I find so fascinating about what he was able to do that I could never do. You know, at the moment I said, well, I don't have to be Stan Lee. I don't have to be Roy Thomas. I can be myself. Look at all these people being themselves. And Steve was amazing about what he did, both with Man-Thing and Howard the Duck and, and what he did when he did The Defenders, which is the craziest superhero book anyone ever did, was <laughs> wake up. I don't know what the correct word would be for that, but he was someone who was able to do this amazing transformational change as a creator i mean the guy himself was always there but i don't know if it was a matter of saying i am now brave enough or i've written enough books or i've got the chops and i improved i can do it that i could get more experimental to do something like man thing to do something like howard duck you know has again to do what he did with the defenders so uh, i've always been amazed that he was able to do that as something i couldn't do and it's something it's very difficult for anybody to do. He became someone who bled on the page. That's why I mentioned some of the people like Don McGregor and the people like Steve who really put everything of themselves into it. Not to say other people did not put everything themselves of themselves into it as well. But for some people, it's I'm going to make the best damn roller coaster that you ever rode. And it's going to be a thrill ride and you're going to love it. And there's that kind of comic book and then there's the other kind of comic book that is i wanted you to know what it's like for me to walk on this planet and you're gonna look inside my skull and feel all my pain and that's what steve gerber was trying to do in his comic books so that other people were not trying so it's a whole different experience that yes you have the, the action and the man thing walking around and the defenders walking around but you know who comes up with the things like the elf Elf with a gun. Who comes up with, you know, with uh, there was a Doctor Bond, who and all of those strange <laughs> characters, shopping bag lady, and all the various characters. You know, a, a different kind of writer, not as zany and not as surreal, would not have come up with those things. So even in those, which are less personal, and I shouldn't say less personal, but something like Man Thing was really seeing Steve's heart. Uh, yeah. And the Defenders were seeing the more surreal side of him. Thank you, Scott Edelman. It was fun to talk with him. He's a guy with a million interesting stories about working in comics. Scott has also actually got a candid, very relaxed interview you can listen to on YouTube from 1975 of Scott interviewing Gerber for about 20 minutes in some Marvel office about Man-Thing and details of the Defenders and about Crazy Magazine. It's a real audio artifact. We were also lucky enough to talk with one of Steve's closest co-workers and his therapy buddy, Jerry Conway. Well, Steve, I think only he only really worked in comics for about five or six years, you know, in total. Mm -hmm. uh, he went into the animation field and uh, uh, that's, I think, where, you know, he sort of lost his focus, you know, as a, as a comic book figure. But 
he was an interesting guy. I mean, I think we were friends for a couple of years uh, when he was living in New York, uh, when he first came into, into the business. Uh, you know, he came from Missouri. He was brought in by Roy Thomas, part of the Missouri Mafia. And he was older than I was by a couple of years, a few years. But because I, was, I had been around longer, you know, we had this kind of weird relationship where I looked up at him as an older guy but he looked up at me as somebody who knew more about comics, you know, and writing comics. So it was like this kind of buddy, buddy system, but he came in with a really different attitude than people like Denny O'Neill or myself or Marv Wolfman or, or Len Wein or Chris Claremont. Well, Denny was probably the least immersed in comics as a fan. He at least came into it with the attitude of this is a cool medium where I can do interesting stories about uh, uh, mythic heroic figures, people like me, Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, we were we were looking at it as we're fanboys. We we love this stuff. You know, we want to make it happen. You know, uh, do, do the stories we would like to do. Steve came in as somebody who had read comics, but didn't really give that much of a crap about them. You know, he saw them as silly books, as funny books. And while he really wanted to do a good job, he always had this ironic distance that enabled him to see the absurdity of what we, what we took for granted. So he was able to step back and really, really nail you know, the, the foolishness of some of the things that we took for granted and, and thought were uh, just fine. That ironic approach, you know, is really why he's the, the well-remembered writer that he is, he wasn't enamored of, of comics. Like once he left, I don't think he ever cared whether he wrote another comic again. Uh, you know, I've come back to it, you know, many times over the years, you know, even after I had a successful TV career, I wanted to write comics again. Steve didn't. <laughs> it wasn't something he cared about. He did care when he wrote the stories and he tried to make them, you know, authentic. But his authentic aspect was to recognize the absurdity. I have a personal story about Steve because he he lived about 10 blocks north of me in West Side uh, Manhattan. We also were, uh, for several months, we had our therapy appointments on the same day, but separated by an hour. So I, I, my, my, my therapy appointment was at one o'clock to two o'clock and Steve's therapy appointment was at uh, four o'clock to five o'clock. Uh, we would meet for coffee between our therapy appointments and oh, wow. just chat. <laughs> I was usually processing my therapy stuff and Steve was thinking about the things that he wanted to talk about. But one time, near the end of the time that Steve was in New York, he was in a bad mood at this one conversation. And he had always, he always had a kind of a general bad mood. Steve was like the character in Peanuts that had the dark cloud, you know, hovering over his head. <laughs> Uh, he just, uh, things would irritate him. He, he and Larry David would have a lot in common. And he was complaining about New York. He hated living in New York. I hate living in New York. It's the worst place. It's just, it's so loud. It's noisy that it can't go anywhere. You know, it's expensive. And I said, well, why, why do you, you know, why do you live here? And he says, well, you know, I, I have to write a lot of comics, you know, and, uh, you know, you have to be living in New York to get the amount of work that I, I need to get. If I left New York, you know, I, I would get maybe half as much writing as, as I do. And I was like, gee, why do you need all that writing? He says, well, because it's very expensive to live in New York. <laughs> and I mean, I literally saw the light bulb go off over his head. And the penny dropped. <laughs> Two weeks later, he left. <laughs> he moved to California. Hey. It was gone. <laughs> My first comic book convention in New York City was 1976. For me, as a little kid, you know, 12 years old or whatever, it was like mind blowing. Oh, and I yeah. met him. Yeah. And he signed my book, you know, but I only, I was like, oh, he writes Howard the Duck. It's such a weird thing to be doing. That was like yeah. in my little mind, you know, that was all yeah. he ever did go around thinking about that Howard DeDuck can be the president, you know? <laughs> that character sums up everything about Steve as a creator, uh, because 
apparently that for him, the initial thought that provoked it was the idea that if you actually saw Donald Duck on the street, it would be fucking horrifying. <laughs> he said the idea of a three foot tall humanoid duck walking, walking around would be just a nightmare. And, you know, he was like joking, but then he thought, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> then he took it and he turned it into the book. And I remember Roy uh, Thomas's reaction. This is, you know, at that time, we, we were all pretty much unsupervised. Roy was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> when the character showed up in Man Thing, how does this relate to Man Thing? What is this? <laughs> and she was like, I don't know. I just had this idea, you know, <laughs> how to do it. You know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, it quickly became this major hit that, that surprised everyone. It's Bryce Steve, you know, because his attitude, as I said, was always this kind of sardonic outsider attitude, you know, that uh, none of this stuff should be taken seriously. <laughs> but uh, people really embraced it. I'm sure that with everybody, with yourself included, the stories you came up with for the comics are very personal, but there was something about how Steve Gerber does it in his stories that makes you feel the creator's voice even more. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, un, uh, it's unmediated. I mean, Steve was not really influenced by Stan's writing you know uh, people people like me uh, roy thomas uh marv len we were influenced you know we wanted to sound like stan to some degree marv less so but all of us were were uh, specifically in the stan lee style steve didn't have that so when when you're reading a, a marvel comic by steve gerber you're reading something that isn't attempting to be a marvel comic <laughs> you know it's that's and that makes it stand out very specific and very personal. Uh, you know, I was attempting to write a Marvel comic. Uh, Chris Claremont was always writing a Marvel comic. Steve was writing this weird thing that he wanted to write. And as a result, you know, it had a, a voice specific to him. And the times when he would try to write a regular straight superhero book were his least successful books. Uh, like when he did Daredevil, I don't think he did that as well as uh, you know, band thing, which you know he could do whatever he wanted with it, because Stan had never written a book like that. <laughs> so right. it just didn't. It's just so tragic, you know, to me that he uh, that he left the business as much as he did, and that uh, he died so young. You know, I mean, uh, just bad. That was Jerry Conway. Now, one of the things that Jerry told us which was something that everybody told us who we spoke to uh, about Steve Gerber, is if you really want to know about Gerber, you have to talk to Mary Screenus. And it, that just, that same phrase, got, well, I know I have some stories, but you really should talk to Mary Screenus. Right. And, but the other thing that everybody said is, you're probably not going to be able to talk to Mary Screenus because yeah. she really is very private. One of the only things that I could find about Mary online was a quote from Steve Gerber saying, she's so private, she'll probably get really mad that I'm even saying that she's private. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Right. Um, it took us a while. It to, did. To track her down. <clears throat> she uh, doesn't write comics anymore. She has a successful business out West. And, you know, she's just a, she's a mystery of a person. So we didn't know really kind of what to, ex I was honestly, I, I have to say, I was like a little nervous going into the interview with her. Right. She was very we nice. we knew that we had to be sensitive to the fact that she doesn't do interviews. So we got on the phone. Mary, I have to ask, I've been saying your name, your last name is Screens. Am I saying that right? Uh, Screenus is how my dad pronounced it. It was his name. Okay. Well, I'll. If it's good enough for your dad, it's good enough. Goddess. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> and so, fine. I realized that we didn't have to worry. It was going to be a good interview. <laughs> it is a real pleasure to have you on our show. Because yeah. <laughs> I haven't been on anybody else's show, so we'll see well, what happens. <laughs> I see some stuff on the internet that, you know, claims to 
tell the story of how you started working at DC and then at Marvel, but I don't know how you started working with Steve. Well, I um, I went over to Marvel and I got pretty sick of DC and I had done some stuff for Deadly Hands of Kung Fu and for the mystery books and whatever. And um, when I came into the office one day and like all the guys, Len and Marv had come over there and, and maybe Jerry, just like a whole bunch of the guys were like, oh, man, where have you been? You know? and, and I said, well, I just haven't been sleeping and I finally found a way to get to sleep. And then I really have a hard time waking up. And then this giant head, I've told this this way because this is the way I remember it. This giant head, what turned out to be Steve Gerber, just comes floating in and just like reaches in and like pulls me out of all these guys and says, how do you get to sleep and how do you wake up? And so that's how I met him. And, uh, you know, a bunch of us go out and have burgers or whatever. But then I, uh, I didn't go in for about six months or something like that. And I came back. And somehow Steve had, I didn't even realize this, but he had lost 50 pounds and gotten divorced. So we, he was, you know, he told me he was divorced and he asked me to go have dinner with him by himself. And he wanted me to work on this new concept that he'd been given by Stan. It was Omega. And we started talking about it. And Steve and I, it turns out, have kind of a psychic connection because we just instantly, and we didn't even know each other, would start finishing each other's sentences as we plotted the opening of Omega the Unknown. <laughs> like there's a car crash and I go, yeah, and then his mother's head's cut off and, and she's a robot. How did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> he said, I want you to know who I am. And he didn't give me any of his superhero stuff because he knew I didn't care about it. He gave me man thing to read, a bunch of man things. So that I could get an idea of who he was. And I liked who he was. Um, I liked his stories. I liked his take on things. And I liked his silliness when he, you know, began doing Howard. <laughs> I don't really care for writing except for fight scenes. I like writing fight scenes. But I like plotting. I really enjoy plotting. But plotting with somebody is so fun. <laughs> you know, it really is. It's like you're just creating these worlds. And at the same time, around the same time, they gave the go ahead for Howard. So I was at dinner in one of those same places, a burger brew bar, one of those. And he's describing how Howard is climbing up this skyscraper made out of credit cards and he gets to this opening and he looks in. And I interjected and we all smoked that. <laughs> And there is a scantily clad woman chained to the wall. And her name is Beverly Switzer. And I, uh, no, 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 it's Swizzle. No, he said, no, it's Switzer. So Beverly, I thought of Judy Landers. I don't know if you know who Judy Landers was. Just like the cutest little blonde bimbo looking thing. Stewart is school. Is that the best you could do for me? Listen, Shika, this is a real opportunity for you to change your whole life around. Yeah, yeah, sure, Harry. I'm a god with anticipation. Anyway, she's so cute. And so that's the way I saw Beverly, but Beverly was also smart, but she was really sweet. <laughs> so you didn't really like writing in a lot of ways, but you loved plotting. Yeah. Did you end up doing a lot of writing? Most well, I had already... <laughs> I did a lot of writing with Steve Skates on the funny animal books. I just had so much fun with those. And then when I started writing with Steve Gerber, he said, I, I don't know if I should be taking you away from Skates. It's like, you know, I feel like I'm breaking up Burns and Allen. <laughs> but it was that. Steve loved input and he wanted input. And he was very generous about crediting all the input that he got even if somebody is you know was there holding his hand or giving him a cup of coffee or something he'd give him a credit in the book because they yeah mary and steve of course co-created one of the strangest and coolest short-lived comics of the 70s omega the unknown which was about a boy named james michael who's somehow psychically connected with this mute extraterrestrial hero it's great and you can tell she loved doing that book. 
Well, maybe, you know, like I said, we had all these 12-year-old kids for fans, and it was wonderful because, you know, really, it was for them. Steve was kind of like James Michael, and I was kind of like Diane. And we lived in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> so we really? put them living there, too. You know, Jim Shooter fucked the whole thing up. We were supposed to be able to do whatever we wanted to do with that book. But Shooter didn't get the memo, so... Is that why it ended early? Was oh, that why... Uh... It ended early because we had an idea of how this book should go. There was a particular cover that we wanted that he wouldn't let us have. <laughs> you know? uh, anyway, he wouldn't let us have it, and I just got so pissed at him, I slammed the phone down. Next thing I know, the book's canceled. Huh? Adam and I were also kind of amazed to hear how intertwined the lives of some of these people were. The names you saw on page one of all your favorite comics, they were enjoying the early 70s just like anybody. His brother gave him an apartment on uh, a nice like railroad flat on 97th Street and, and Riverside Drive. It was pretty mm. nice, actually. But eventually he moved down to Hell's Kitchen with... Starling and Skates and I. <laughs> Wait, you and Steve Skates and Steve Gerber lived together? Well, Starling and Skates had a second floor walk up on 44th Street. My apartment, there were two apartments on the second floor uh, between on 9th Avenue between 44th and 45th, and I was on the second floor there. So my friend Heather had the other apartment. So eventually, Heather and Starlin got together. Skates moved into Heather's apartment, and Gerber moved into my apartment. We didn't all share a bed, but we all were, you know, buds. And so we're talking about Jim Starlin, though. Is that yes. yeah. oh, Okay, wow. Is there another one? <laughs> there, another there may one? be, but not in my life. Whenever we talk to people about Steve Gerber, they're always like, He's completely like in his own lane, influenced by what everything that came before the big guys, Stan Lee and Kirby. Oh, yeah. Stan Lee fucked him over 17 times, but to the end, he loved Stan. He just, I mean, he just loved him. And many people do. I, I didn't really have that. I wasn't enamored, you know, I didn't know him. I didn't. I didn't give a shit about Spider-Man, really. <laughs> Superheroes are not that interesting to me. In a way, it, you guys must have felt like you were working for this big superhero factory, but doing something much more interesting. Yes, and uh, his characters were far more interesting to me. The way he wrote was he would always find a character that he could speak through. And... Um, the duck was the character that that most allowed him to express his frustration with society, politics, bigwigs, assholes, and his frustration. I mean, actually, you know, it makes me think like they made the Howard the Duck movie much too early, because if they made it now, it would have a chance of being something that evokes what the book was the essence of the book because they're better now but the back then the movie was oh, i mean it came out before jessica rabbit if they could have done it like that you know yeah. and animated him would have been better yeah but he, he said once who, who produced it uh, lucas yeah um you know it's not everybody that has their seminal creation destroyed by george lucas <laughs> <laughs> so witty if we'd get a bunch of us would get together he was so, so funny i mean he could I, I can't even try and be witty like that he would just take something out of the air and spin it into something so funny you know and, and so right on and so and his comments about politicians were so brilliant and i mean i couldn't even emulate any of that that was a you know <laughs> our collaborations were so good <laughs> Because he was so different from me. 
What do you think that Steve really brought to comic books that, you know, wasn't there before him? Well, like with Man-Thing, Steve took a book that nobody wanted to write because Man-Thing was such a nothing. Yeah. And, and he just could tell any story that he wanted to tell. He watched like multiple news channels every day. He was really up on every candidate that ever ran for fire office. And he could tell you exactly what they were like and, and how they were going to be as a president because he could see from their background and the way, you know, like Hillary was a business lawyer and she would be like this. And this one was an entertainment lawyer and he would be like this, you know, that's the way they would approach the law. And it was so neat. And I really liked having access to that stuff, that interpretation of everything. <sighs> and he's gone. So you were, you were with him when he died. Yes. He, he had moved back here um, and he would come, I made him come to my house because he had all these cats. He's got pulmonary fibrosis, but he adopted all these feral cats. <laughs> just walked in and out of his house, which is like, his house was like a fur bomb and I'm allergic to cats. I wouldn't go over there. He had to come over here <laughs> to work. But it sounds like he was lucky to have you. Oh, he's a dear friend. I love him to death. I just, he was, um, I, here's the thing. My husband, we're partners. We started this business after about 10 years. He wanted to get married. I'm like, you know, we get along really well. But he doesn't need me. We just like each other. We want to be together. But it so, sounds like Steve needed you. Steve needed somebody. He always needed somebody. Steve and I did hard time for DC. Um, he was dying. Sad because I loved working with him. And then it was just like he was really, he had, uh, he needed a double lung transplant. So Steve Gerber left, it seems like this is the kind of timeline. He he left New York after the debacle with Howard the Duck. He went to Vegas, he went to LA, he invented Thundar, the barbarian, and worked in animation very successfully mm -hmm. for um, quite a while. Got back into comics in the 90s, I think with Dr. Fate, and he did a, a series called Hard Time yeah. with Mary. And yes. she's really proud of that book. I actually haven't read it, but I ordered it. Oh, you I, did? Yeah. Good, so gonna, we have to get into it. I got to read it. Yes, definitely. That's on my agenda. Too. So it was kind of bittersweet doing that book. I, I was really, it's the most invested in any book that I will ever have. And I love that book and nobody ever <laughs> talks about it. They've reprinted it so they could keep the copyright on it. Oh, it was really fun. All the characters we created for that book were fun. But it was sad. Steve was in a lot of pain when he was, we were writing Hard Time. And he would make horrible strangled noises. Mm. And so we called him Steve! Steve used to have a, an extra page on his web page that when people would look up Omega the Unknown, it would say, Omega the Unknown was created by Mary Screamers. He always put my name first. Like he did on the, he had a bound and he put my, Mary Screamers and Steve Gerber in 19 whatever it was. So if you look that up, that's the first thing that would pop up because nobody ever mentions me when they mention Omega. Well, the people in the know do. Yes. Everybody said to us, you got to talk to Mary Screenis. I mean, maybe you hear this occasionally because, you know, you're not, you know, a lot of people who, if they were part of the work that you had done would be just like doing interviews all the time. And I don't blame you. You don't feel like doing it. That's completely fine. But a lot of people really appreciate deeply this work that you were part of. 
you I'm know. Glad. I'm glad because you know, I love Steve, and I love the work we did together. I mean, he could be pretty intense. Thank you very much for talking well, to us. I enjoyed it, you guys. What okay. a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. It's great meeting you. Thanks for doing it. Thanks. It wasn't really painful at all. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was a grown-ass men exclusive, a very interesting conversation with Mary Screenus. So what would you recommend somebody, if somebody wants to read Steve Gerber's stuff, what should they start with? Like I said before, as strong as Howard the Duck is, Man-Thing is equally strong. On your shelf, you've got Man-Thing. I got do. A, you've got a big compilation of Man-Thing that I actually want to borrow because it's I, I haven't read enough Man-Thing. Yeah. I uh, always keep it there, and I would do buy them both. You're not going to be disappointed. You have to get Adventures into Fear, which has the Man-Thing issues in it, mm -hmm. which becomes a regular Man-Thing book with issue one of Man-Thing. Yep. A lot of those are Gerber. Great art. We have Gorko the Man Frog, <laughs> which uh, I wrote the only Gorko the Man Frog song in, in the Ever. history yeah. of Marvel Comics. Take a lark, go on that log. There sits Gorko the Man Frog. You know, if Boom was still around and I was around back then, I'd probably have a job. I think this is Foom. I think this is... <laughs> this is Foom! <laughs> uh, so I think I would say, you know, if you, if somebody was going to start reading Gerber, that they should start with Howard. Yeah. But I think if you start with Howard, there's a thing called the Howard the Duck Complete Collection that actually starts in Man-Thing. Yes. Because that was his That's first appearances. His, yeah. And and it's, it's a really cool collection because it goes... It takes you... Really through Gerber's, some of his best writing. I think you should also visit the Defenders, because people really rave about, like, he really took it out there. There's a lot of good stuff to check out. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all of our wonderful guests today. Uh, Jerry Conway, Scott Edelman, J.M. DiMatteis, and Mary Screenus. Thanks so much for all the great stories, Steve Gerber, and all of our guests. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody.